Hello and welcome to the Synthetic Dreams podcast. For the 10th episode, I had the honour of speaking to Andy McCluskey from Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, one of the most influential electronic acts of all time. On the show, Andy speaks warmly about the early days of OMD, the joys of playing to a live crowd, and the group's plans for the rest of the year. If you haven't already done so, please give us a follow on Twitter or subscribe to the show via Spotify, Deezer and iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening. So I'm delighted to speak to Andy McCluskey from OMD. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Nice to talk to you, Scott. So I just wondered how life's been for you in lockdown and what, what you've been up to recently, mm. keeping yourself busy. Well, we came off the back of a 75-day tour of America and Europe. So actually, I was, I was ready for a rest. And the sunshine in April and May last year was great. Um, <clears throat> but then I got so bored, like everybody else, I started writing songs. And so there will be a new OMD album. Um, I was going into my programming room because there was bugger all else to do. And I found that I had some ideas and inspiration. So, you know, something's, something's good has come out of it for me. But obviously it's frustrating. And, you know, we're still not out of the woods. We still don't know when we're going to play again properly. And so the recording these days, I mean, have you managed to meet up with Paul at all? I, mean, uh, I know we've been in for a lockdown, but have, has there been some moments where you could meet up and work together? Um, after the lockdown was lifted last summer, I did work briefly with him in his studio. But, um, excuse me, <clears throat> no. Um, and now it's more difficult because he, he's gone to France so, um, but yeah, we, we, we used to work where he'd come up to my house for a week and we'd sit and write together because the chemistry of being in the same room at the same time is better than sending thing files up and down the internet. Because you, you, you want to be able to say, no, 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 not that note, that note, whilst he's in the room, yeah. not just wait two weeks and go, actually, not that note, <laughs> you can't do it. So, um, but yeah, it, it, I've already sent him two tracks to start mixing because Paul's a mixer, he's got the good ears. So... Um, yeah, Paul's already started mixing. Now, that, that doesn't mean the album's going to be out before Christmas or something, but he's <laughs> slow. He's good, but he's bloody slow at mixing. Um, and also, he's just become a father again, so he might be changing nappies on the mixing console. So when, um, when did you guys first meet? I believe you met at school, is that correct? So you go back a long, long way. What was your first yeah, impression with each other? <laughs> Well, Paul was seven when he came to my school, but he wasn't in my year. So I knew of him. I knew him in the playground, you know, we, but we weren't really friends, even though he lived in Mel's where I lived. And my mum was the lollipop lady and used to put him across the road every day to go to school. Um, it wasn't really until I was 16 and I bought a bass guitar with my 16th birthday money, the famous upside down guitar because the only one I could afford was left-handed so, and I'm right-handed oh yeah I was walking around the park with my bass guitar oh bass guitar um as you do and and Paul came knocking on the door saying I've seen you with your bass guitar these are my mates from my, my school we went to different secondary schools and um they said yeah you know we want to join the band but quite quickly because Paul lived in Mel's we got to then start talking to each other Paul wasn't in the band he was the roadie yeah. he was only the roadie because he didn't actually have any musical equipment he just the guy who hung around with the people who had the instruments um but he he had studied electronics and I, I used to go around with my records um because he built a stereo and I only had a mono record player so I would get my German imports 
from Probe Records on a Saturday morning, then take the train home and go to Paul's house, and we'd listen to. And then he's like, "Well, I'm studying electronics. Maybe I could make something that made." And so we started in his mum's room on a Saturday afternoon instead of just listening to records making noises when she was at work and that's kind of where we started when in fact he wasn't even 16 he was 15. wow really mm. yeah so and it, it was it was it was quite a while before we we got any uh, keyboards i mean we got a vox jaguar organ first off a mate and we got a selma pianotron the plinky plink sound in yeah. the electricity once we got those and paul started to teach himself to play keyboards then we could actually instead of just being ambient noises we actually started to write song structures yeah. And the very first song we ever wrote was Electricity, except it was called Pulsar Energy then. And we, we cannibalized Pulsar Energy into Electricity over, over a period of a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Amazing. And can you remember your first gig and what that was like? Yeah. Well, we'd been in a band with our mates who kind of like taken our songs and sort of made them into like terrible six form prog rock. Um, <laughs> and we... Uh, yeah um we went to eric's club we all you know we we were one of the people who went to eric's we we were from the other side of the river we looked like unreconstructed hippies we weren't the cool people at eric's but eric's was where the outsiders and the outcasts and the intellectuals and the pseudo intellectuals and everybody went and everybody who went to eric's was in a band or was going to be in a band but they had an open door policy on thursday nights that you know free for members anybody could play and we just knocked on the door and said you know our proggy rock band had kind of played its farewell gig at eric's as everybody was going off to university at the age of you know 18 um or 19 and 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 basically uh we knocked on the door Erickson said hi we were we were in the id we played here last month could we come and play just the two of us purely electronic and because we'd heard I mean, we heard warm leatherette by the normal and we just were like what the hell is that somebody somebody english has been listening to what we're into so okay, well, let's just go and do a gig let's do a gig and say we did it our way you know without our mates putting lead guitar solos over everything uh so that yeah we that's when we invented the band for one gig and what was the kind of, what was it like, the relationships with other band members that were playing, Eric? Was it like a healthy competitiveness and did you all get along? Yeah, there was a, there was a, comp- I mean, we all knew each other. There was a competitive, again, we were the outsiders. We, we didn't live in bedsit land in Liverpool. We, we were, you know, we were the posh boys from the Wirral Peninsula who were still living at home with mummy. Um, so for that reason, and, and also we played, we played, you know, we were electronic and they were all mostly guitar bands, but we had, um, there were no punk bands. That's the one thing at Eric's, there were no punk bands. It was all basically weird art school, indie rock or whatever, you know, it was, yes. there was no punk bands. Um, yeah. And everybody had a particularly crazy name. I mean, there really isn't a band out of Eric's that had a normal name. Um, Obviously, Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, <laughs> Teardrop Explodes, and Echo and the Bunny Men all played within the first, played their first gigs at Eric's on a Thursday within a month of each other. Okay. But, you know, Block of Seagulls, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Big in Japan. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was amazing. Is it true, and there was a story in Synth Britannia where Wolfgang Fleur, who was in Kraftwerk, says that you guys excitedly went backstage and said, we throw away our guitars and we, we only buy synthesizers. I mean, it sounds like, was, it, was that a story or did that actually happen? Um, I love Wolfgang and he's become a friend of mine over the years. Um, but I'm afraid that 
anecdote is not completely watertight. Um, you know, I was only just 16. Uh, sixth form had just started. It was September the 11th, 1978, and I was in seat Q36 because it was it burned indelibly into my mind as the first day of the rest of my life. And it was an amazing concert. I'd heard Autobahn. I thought, wow, this is it. And I'd, I'd bought some of their records. Um, but no, I was only 16. And I had to get a bus to get the train to go home because it was school the next day. And I would never have dreamed of knocking on the dressing room door and going, oh, I love your music. And I'm throwing my bass guitar away. I'd only just got the bloody bass guitar for my <laughs> birthday three months earlier. I mean, I was just thinking back then some of the wonderful equipment that you've had over the years. And I'm lucky enough to go to the exhibition in Liverpool a few, a few years ago. And I'm just thinking... How on earth did you just, how did you choose what was going to be in the exhibition with all these wonderful memorabilia and equipment? Must have been a big task. Well, it was, a lot of it was just what we had left. Uh, we, um, we don't have a lot. You know, I, I've, I've fortunately kept all of, my, all of my press cuttings and a lot of posters and things and, and all of my books. Every, every album had a folder, which was my... I'm like such a geek. It was like I was researching, writing notes, going to the library, you know, researching various things to write songs about. And so some of those notes were able... Handwritten notes were able to be displayed, which I think people liked. You could see the Vox Jaguar, the CR78 drum machine. My original bass... The one that when, when the left-handed one was stolen the first time I played in London, um, I, got the, I got this, uh, I got a right-handed Fender Jazz and sprayed it Battleship Grey with an orange scratched place. And it subsequently would mean other colours. It was blue and orange and it was black. But for the exhibition, I thought, I'm going to get somebody to turn it back to the original colour. And, and I said, listen, I said... I said, I don't know what the grey is, but it was basically car body underspray. So whatever colour that is. And the orange is also car spray. And they recreated the base. They even got the right number of laminates on the scratch base. And then they said, we zoomed in the Enola Gay video and we've scratched this and scratched that to make it look exactly like it did in the Enola Gay video. So, so it's been recoloured, but that's the base that's on Enola Gay, Messages, Electricity, Souvenir, Joan of Arc... That base is now back in its original grey and orange colour. That's amazing. Ooh. I mean, I think my highlight was just seeing some of the handwritten lyrics um, in, you know, for like Tesla Girls, and just to see your inner workings. And I mean, that for me was, I think, was the highlight. So there wasn't like, it sounds like you didn't have loads more stuff that, that could have gone into it. You're pretty much happy with how it looked. Yeah, no, I mean, well, first of all, I haven't got an entire warehouse of, of stage costumes like Bowie or Elton John would have, because we dressed very conservatively. The one thing I did, was angry, which I couldn't find, which I've misplaced or lost, was the sleeveless cardigan, and my dad's sleeveless cardigan that I wore for the um, Enola Gay video to make a I am not a pop star statement. I can't find that. But I did have my nice, looks like Christmas woolly jumper that I wore in the Maid of Orleans video, so. Such a great, I mean, you like, I mean, it looks like you guys are trying not to look like pop stars, like you said, but in a way, like, I've read somewhere before, like people turn up to gigs wearing the same things as you, the white, you know, the white shirts and the little ties and the long grey coats, um, which must be funny when you were trying to do the opposite of being transcendent. Yeah, I mean, after uh, the, the, the big tour that we did at the, in um, autumn of 1980 after Enola Gay messages had both been hits. Yeah, it was, we, we were dressing in, you know, 
jackets, suits. We've basically taken the leaf out of Kraftwerk's book, let's say, uh, just for a change. Thin ties, white shirts. But we were just trying to look boring. You know, we, we, somebody, people used to call us the Orc Man at CNA and the Boring Bank Clerks of Pop. And, uh, but yeah, then you come out and the whole front row was all these impressionable teen boys with thin black ties. And you felt like saying, this is not a fashion statement, nor is it a uniform. Wear what you want to wear, not what we're wearing. So I was just thinking then, because it seems to be that um, 80s music and synthesizer music, electronic music, so it's very more popular than ever. Have you noticed that your music's getting kind of more listened than ever before as, as these new audiences? It seems to be with every album that you release, more audiences are coming forward, which must be brilliant. I think there's a series of things going on, Scott. Um, obviously, you know, in the 90s, before people realized we'd moved into the postmodern era, everybody still was thinking like it's, it's, it's linear, you know, this replaces this, this is old, this is new. Um, and in the nineties, you know, we were perceived as a 80 synth pop band and grunge and, 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 um, uh, you know, Brit pop had come along and it was really difficult to kind of, um, wonder what was going to happen next. And actually, you know, that I stopped, I stopped in the mid nineties and went and did something else for 11 years, but then slowly, you know, started to realize that actually there is nothing new anymore. It's now popular culture is eating its own history, not just in music in all popular culture. Um, oh, so we thought, yeah, we might put a toe back in the water and yeah. I'm glad we did because I think we were start because we'd never made a big thing about wanting to look like, you know, we weren't, um, you know, we weren't blitz kids. We didn't dress up. We weren't, you know, Duran Duran or Spandau Ballet or Boy George or we, so we kind of, we felt we were getting lost because people were forgetting us because we were the kind of like dour Northern, you know, we're not dressing like pop stars. So we didn't, mm. we, there was no look to us. It was just, uh, um, so what's happened is since we've started playing again is yeah, people have been reminded of us. We didn't want to do any of the retro festivals until we could prove that we were a standalone touring band. But I think once we started doing Rewind and Let's Rock, what we found is that people who knew our songs but had never seen us live and probably thought, well, are they any good? Saw us at a, a Rewind and went, why have I never seen them before they kick ass on stage? You know, so, so we've been kind of converting people. Um, and then I think the three albums, without sounding big-headed, I think the three albums have kind of contemporized us because we put a lot of effort into those albums and we, they're, I think they're good. I mean, we know they're good because we, we had time to be objective about them. You know, you, you could listen to them and go, no, that is a good song. We're not deluding ourselves. And, and, and we've done interesting program on it. And we, we tried not to be consciously retro. We've got a sound, but we're also trying to go forward, you know, so it's, um, it's been a combination of things, but yes, it has grown. I can see from Spotify, we're getting more streams. It's amazing. The age demographic has grown as well, but a lot younger people as well now, not just our original audience. Which is great. Because um, you said about then, about people seeing you at like the Rewind Festival, because this actually did happen to a friend of mine. She was working at the Rewind Festival and she said, um, who should I go and see? And she wasn't aware of your work. And I said, you've got to go and see OMD. She was like, she kind of knew the name. She came back and I said, who did you see? She was just raving on about your gig, saying, I saw OMD and they were amazing. Well, this said, there you go. So that's good. Exactly. I, and now she's a fan. So it's nice how you, know, you play these festivals. 
Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is our agent was dead against it. He was like, no, 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 you're not going to do that. You know, you, you, you're your own band. And we were like, yeah, but we're in a situation where people who've seen us come again, people who haven't seen us go, oh, are they any good? So we need to go and get them. They're not coming to us. We need to go and get them. As soon as we started doing Rewind, boom, you know, we started doing more and more tickets at our own gigs because people went, oh, I never had any idea how they were that good. <laughs> I know, and um, I, said, I saw you guys a few years back at the Liverpool Empire, and it was such a great gig, but it was like the reaction to every song was like it was your last song. Everyone on the stood up, clapping, cheering. It was just like, wow, I was just looking around thinking, you know, it's so good though. You, you, all these years later, you still have this, I mean, you have the amaz most amazing audiences and fans, I think. Lovely. We are blessed. I mean, I, I don't know whether it's because we went away for a long time, so they're happy to have us back. Um, the funny thing is, is that the band has now been reformed for longer than it was formed in the first place before it split up originally, <laughs> so that's quite strange. Um, we have amazing fans, and the, the energy at the concerts, I mean, considering that there's still quite a few people there who are in their 50s and 60s, but the energy at the concerts is incredible. Um, but I think it's like, you know, I think you get it back if you give it. It's both ways. We can feel the energy coming to us, which just inspires us to give more. And, um, yeah, it, it, gets, it gets quite euphoric. I mean, by the time I come off stage, I'm drained, but I'm on such a high. It's incredible. So going back to the, the uh, punishment of luxury, so when you were actually making the album, you and Paul... Did you start to think we've got something special here when you were doing it? Or was it just a case of just like any other album, just putting it out and just seeing what happens? But you must have thought this is pretty special. When you're making something, you're not sure. You know, you, 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 you wouldn't stick with the songs if you didn't think they were good, you know, because it's like you... You know, you, you musician, songwriter, do you write music? Only in a hobby, like a hobby. Yeah, I have a synthesizer, but for a hobby. Yeah, okay. Sometimes you write something and you're buzzing off and you go, oh, wow, yeah, yeah. And then you come back tomorrow and you go, oh, it's crap, actually. What was I thinking? You know, it's like, so you need time. And, 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 but once you've spent a few months with some songs and every day you come back and you go, oh, this is working. I just need to fix the middle eight and I just need to, you know, you know when it's working. It wasn't until it was all fully mixed and then, and also I'd adjusted to the mix because it, even though it all stays in the box all the way through, I still get demoitis because I know what it sounds like in my room. And then when Paul finishes with it in his room, even though it's the same stuff, it doesn't sound quite the same, although it's because it sounds better, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, a couple of months down the line, I actually put it on on my, uh, on my phone with headphones on. And I just went, you know, once I'd adjusted to the sound of it and I, enough distance had gone from the mixing where you're just so close, you can't see what you're doing. Yeah, Paul and I... I mean, again, it sounds big-headed, but Paul and I actually think that this is up there alongside the first three albums, alongside the first four albums, as, you know, people talk about architectural morality as the kind of the summit of our success, and Dazzle Ships as the summit of our kind of experimentation. I think Punishment of Luxury is right in there with those two, you know. I'm very proud of that album. We... But we bust our balls to do it. You know, 
guys in their late 50s who are sat in a programming room day after day after day, hour after hour, fine-tuning it, making it... Because we're not going to release something just because we want a new tour or a logo for a T-shirt. You know, uh, it's... It, it's we're in a good place now. People speak highly of us. The last thing you want to do is release an album. Everybody goes, oh, God, that was crap, wasn't it? Well, I hope they don't play too many of those songs <laughs> on the next tour, you know? Well, it was, I mean, it was, I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking to you, but I think it's one of the rare occasions where I kind of wanted to hear most of the new album. So even though I love Oil, I love everything you've done in the past, but I was like, I mean, just when you started, when you started the opener with, um, oh, is it Ghost Star? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, I mean, that was such a powerful opening song. And I just thought, you know, you've got all these new songs and it must have been hard to sort of choose what, what to play, really. I mean, I know you did that thing where fans could choose the um, mm-hmm. encore, mm-hmm. which I loved. I mean, that was such a good idea. I've never seen that before. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite good fun. Um, generally... Generally, you kind of uh, you knew you knew what they were going to pick because if there was a single in there, it was going to be the single. <clears throat> but just occasionally, you got a block of people who went right. We're all going to say New Stone Age. Okay, everybody vote for New Stone Age. We don't want a single. <laughs> but yeah. it was it was fun. It was really good fun. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, we had to. Uh, it meant that we had to. The, the, the songs that were not always in the set, we had to keep rehearsing them to keep the freshest in case we had to to drop them in. But no, it was it was it was a nice thing to do. And also, it was good when you released the B sides album, um, because there's a track called "I'm Going to Try and Pronounce Lampe Licht." Oh, Lampe Licht. About, about yeah. Hans Lampe, who's the Noi drummer from Noi '75, mm-hmm. um, who who I've seen with. Michael Rother, because they toured together. Uh, I mean, has, do you know if he's heard that track at all? Or I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he 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 knows of it. Uh, I I met him and and Michael Rother uh, in Dusseldorf a few years ago. Um, Rudy Esch, who um, wrote the Electric City book, um, introduced me to. In fact, took me to dinner, and and I, I remember saying to. Um, Michael, I said, you know, I said, I've got to tell you something. I said, somebody asked me, you know, what's my most played thing on my iTunes? And, I, and, I, and they said, you know, is it Kraftwerk? Is it, is it, you know, and, and I went, it's Flamenda Hertzen by Michael Rosa. I said, that's, I said, that's my most played album on my iTunes accounts. And, uh, <clears throat> and he said, oh, well, I'm sorry. Um, we're not playing anything off that album tonight. Well, it doesn't matter. I said, I thought I'd never see you playing your music or Noi uh, live. And the fact that he had Hans Lamper with him as well was great. So um, it was just incredible to hear that Lamper doing the motoric beat live. It's just, he's relentless. How does he keep it up at his age? So yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to write a song um, oh. about him. And the great thing is actually, it's, it's my son playing drums on it as well, doing Hans Lamper's motoric. So. Oh. Brilliant. No, I love that track. Mm, thank um, you. Yeah. It was me basically pastiching Noi. <laughs> but doing it very well. Thank you. And um, so talking about plans for this year, um, I believe you're doing a, a live stream concert in aid of, um, you know, your hardworking crew, uh, which are, is that still going to hopefully happen this year? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been postponed twice. Um, 
it's now going to be uh, it's June the 19th we were hoping it was going to be the beginning of starting work again but the six German festivals have just been postponed till next the ones from July Leeds let's rock on the 26th of June are they really going to let 15,000 people stand in a field on the 26th of June it's not it's not being cancelled or postponed yet but the ones from earlier in June have been pushed I just I don't know I've got a horrible feeling that we'll all have to get up to speed again for June the 19th and then we're going to stop again for another three or four months. I mean, what I really hope is that we do our um, UK tour in um, November because that's that's going to be us celebrating the 40th anniversary of architecture morality and um, and we're going to have Scritti Politi with us for a few shows, which is going to be great as well. Um, so we just, yeah, finger... finger Oh, listen, when I, when I heard that, they, that they'd said yes, I was like, wow. Um, so, yeah, we seem to be celebrating a lot of 40th anniversaries at the moment, but this autumn is the 40th anniversary of Architecture Morality, so we're going to play the whole album. Not necessarily, oh. just, just like Eric Morgan, we're going to play the whole album, but not necessarily in the right yeah, order. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any particular favourites from that album that you, that you never... You never tire on, you know, you say, oh, I could, I could play this every gig and I love this song, or is, is it like children, hard to um, <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the three hit singles, which we kind of call the Holy Trinity, which always get played together now, it's always Souvenir Joan, Joan made. Um, you just always know, you just know that that's going to, people are just going to love that. You know, it's it's like it's like it's like when you start the drum machine to Enola Gay, and when you know when you get through Souvenir Joan of Made of All, it's like just as you're about to go into that, you just you know, it's like sitting at a poker table going, "I've got four aces. I can't wait to put this on the table." <laughs> you know, it's like I'm just I'm ready to do this, and 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 that is just um, so it's it's always wonderful when you know you're just about to play the hit and the place is going to go, "Oh my god!" and then erupt, but. Yeah, I did. Um, it was really nice to play Sealand again. And was it, it was interesting as well to play the beginning and the end, which has basically no drums in it. Um, so Stuart, our drummer, comes down off the drum podium and plays guitar. So um, because Martin and I haven't played guitar for so long that he can actually... Stuart, Stuart is a very versatile musician, so he comes down and plays that. So... Um, yeah, I, I mean, we, we, we played the, the Royal Albert Hall, um, all of Architecture, Morality and Dazzle Ships back in 15. And that was, um, that was amazing. You know, it was, it was, it was amazing to, to be able to play those songs for people who, you know, hadn't heard the whole album for a while. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, every single one's going to be great. And do you have a particular favourite venue that you like playing, one that's always close to your heart on the UK tour? Um, do you know what's interesting is, I mean, every one of our concerts is a certain level that is just, is intense. I mean, the audiences are amazing. We're blessed to have incredibly emotive audience who give us loads of love and we hopefully give it back to them because we're feeding off it. But we have, um, what, has, what tends to happen is, 
you know, you, they're all great, but just occasionally one tips over into just being totally amazing. And you're like, why do, but it's always a different venue. So you can't ever say to yourself, oh my God, Glasgow last time was, so can't wait for Glasgow. And you go, it was great, but it wasn't quite the same as last time. Birmingham was better this year. It's just like, so, but, I mean, <clears throat> it, but it's the difference between like, 95% and 99%. You know, we will, we, we, we just want to make sure, sorry, we just want to make sure that um, we're always at least 95%. And, 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 and the audiences usually let us feel that we are. Well, fingers crossed that they go ahead this year. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And thank you for taking out some time to talk to us today. I much appreciate it. Scott, very, very nice to talk to you. And um, uh, yeah, hopefully. You'll come and see us live in the not-too-distant future. I will do. Pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Bye.